0: Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. We're excited to welcome Yale New Haven Health System CEO Chris O'Connor today. But first, we'd like to check in on current hot topics in health and healthcare. What's on your mind today, Harlan? Well, Howie, I don't know. Do you know how hard it is to get capital into startups these days? Very hard.
1: Very, very hard. So... I was interested to see that uh, actually just today, there was a release out today about a, a company that was able to raise $70 million. I think the place where you can raise money is in generative AI these days. So this was a generative AI com- company called Ambiance Healthcare. But it gets to what I wanted to talk about today, because what Ambiance does, or at least one of the things they do with the AI, is to to produce a product that doctors can use, to be sort of an auto scribe. You know, one of the hard things for docs is you want to be looking in the patient's eyes. You want to be uh, connecting with the person in front of you, but there's a big documentation burden. And by the way, with the electronic health record, this has just caused an immense amount of burnout and dissatisfaction because people are ending up now documenting far into
0: the night and it's, it's, uh, and it's bad for patients, right? Because you're staring at a screen and not at the patient and the patient feels. Yeah, that's the alternative is that you're trying
1: to do it while you're seeing the patient and then no one's actually looking in each other's eyes. Yeah. So, you know, one of the solutions in the beginning was to have somebody follow you around and actually sort of be typing while you're talking. So you have another person in the room. But with the advent of technological advances and generative AI, there's been this, this introduction of ambient artificial intelligence scribes. To, to alleviate the burden of this sort of clinical documentation. And there was recently a, an article that came out in New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst, which is not the medical, the highfalutin medical journal, but is another subsidiary derivative product that they put out, but it's still our, our academic articles. And this one, yeah. Uh, summarized the experience of uh, these ambient artificial intelligence scribes by the permanente medical group. And Basically, these scribes were using machine learning and transcribing and summarizing patient encounters in real time. And it was really showing a lot of promise. And they were doing a lot of things like assessing the quality of the notes, and they were assessing the experience of the individuals in this, the physician-patient interactions, and whether this also reduced after-hours clerical work. And, And all of these things, it was showing real benefits. So let me just tell you that when they evaluated the transcripts, And I'll say there was a whole bunch of ways they were doing this, but this just gives you a sense. It got a score of 48 out of a possible 50 points and it it achieved the highest scores on freedom from bias, whether it was internally consistent, whether it was fairly succinct, a little modestly lower on on, uh, organization. And there were some accuracy issues. For example, there was a case where the physician mentioned scheduling a prostate examination and the AI scribe summarized that a examination, a prostate examination had been performed. And another one where the physician mentioned issues with the patient's hands and feet and mouth, and the AI scribe said that the patient had been diagnosed with hand, foot, and mouth disease. (laughs) So so neither of those things were true. And and you know, one of the dangers is when you've got a scribe who's putting things down, of course, the doc's supposed to be proofing it, but you contend there's this automation bias where you actually default, you know, you sort of read it quickly and assume that what it's done is correct. So there's still work to be done. It'll be iterative over time. But one of the issues that, you know, I've raised to you a lot of times is one of privacy now, because in a sense, you're now having the encounter recorded, because you know, recorded and transcribed. But, but also there is now in the room, you know, essentially a, a recording of it. Another friend of mine, by the way, Shiv Rao, who's a cardiologist, has got another company, a Bridge, it's doing blockbuster, also creating these kind of products, and and of course
0: Microsoft, you know, uh, bought what's the nuance? Yeah, they bought nuance, nuance which has the DAX product. So I, I wanted to mention a couple of quick things on this. So number one, I looked at the nuance uh, DAX product probably six months ago because somebody inquired of me to look at it it's fascinating to watch. It's exactly what you describe. And and it's important to know there are two models that you can approach. You could either do what you describe where the doctor reviews the note themselves, or there can actually be a relatively contemporaneous other professional who's sitting there listening to the tape and reading the report to make sure it's capturing it accurately. So there are ways to deal with the accuracy issue beyond that which you described. The product you're talking about, though, which is Nabla Copilot, what's amazing about that is this is a very early stage startup. They immediately go and do this pilot at Kaiser over the summer and then do a larger pilot in the fall, which is the one you're reporting on, and then they get another, I don't know, thirty or forty million dollars. Seventy
1: million. Seventy million, they raise. But is
0: that Nabla or is that the ambience one? Oh, there's no, that's several. the ambience
1: healthcare. Oh, no. you're talking about Nabla, so I told him another. Nabla. One.
0: I mean it's in this whole area is what's great about it is you have many firms competing at once. By the way, the ones helped. the Abridge one, which is
1: also raised the one I talk about, my friend Shiv started, has raised a a lot of money, and is embedded within Epic. He's got a partnership with Epic. There you go.
0: So we're going to see a lot of competition in this space, and it's happening so fast. In a matter of like nine months, we're seeing major competitors, both from the enormous size of Microsoft down to these really small startups. And I think this can transform uh, clinical outpatient and even inpatient practice.
1: Hey, let's get on to Chris O'Connor. I'm really excited about the,
0: the interview coming up. Chris O'Connor is the chief executive officer and president at Yale New Haven Health. In these roles, he manages the operations of the health system and its five hospitals, as well as its physician network, Northeast Medical Group. Prior to his appointment in March, 2022, he held multiple leadership positions at YNHH, Yale New Haven Hospital, and Yale New Haven Health, most notably as president of the health system through the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic during which time he was crucial in adapting operations and ensuring PPE for the system. Widely recognized for his leadership and strategic acumen, O'Connor has held leadership positions at the Hospital of St. Raphael, St. Elizabeth's Medical Center in Boston, and the Uxner Clinic Foundation in New Orleans through the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. O'Connor received his bachelor's degree in economics and his master's degree in hospital administration from George Washington University. And we both welcome you to the podcast. It's really nice to have you. We've been talking about having you for a while. And I wanted to start off because I didn't even realize that you're a Connecticut native.
2: Born right here at Yale New Haven.
0: Yeah. So I'd love to hear about the origin story, about where you grew up and when did you first get motivated towards economics and then hospital administration? Oh, boy.
2: Uh, this is going back. I, I mean, and you said, uh, you know, suggested short answers. Um, so uh, my father was a corporation counsel for the city of New Haven. So uh, my mom and dad moved here uh, just before my uh my birth uh, in 1969 I was born in 1970 and, um, and my mom was a nurse and so she began I uh, actually worked at Il Illinois Hospital initially and then uh, quickly transitioned to the newborn nursery uh, at the hospital of st. Rayfield and was there for 30 plus years until the the uh, acquisition by Illinois hospital and then ultimately retiring so my familiarity with New Haven has been really through my entire uh, life uh, and, uh, and, and quite a change that has occurred within the city uh, in, in my duration. And uh, it's, it's been great to watch because I think it is thriving right now uh, as a result of some incredible investments that began, I think, from the university's perspective and then the hospital uh with the acquisition of, say, Rayfield has quickly, I think, joined forces uh to, to really foster a different economic environment uh in the city. And it's something that, you know, while it's one component of the system, uh, it is a major one given the disproportionate impact that Yale New Haven hospital has on on Yale New Haven Health. So
0: and I, want, and I want to come back to that, but I was curious to start off just, now it makes more sense to me about why healthcare might have been an interest to you early on, but when did you know you wanted to go down that specific path? And I ask this because a lot of my healthcare management students in the School of Public Health look at you as a role model for good reason, and they come from a very similar sort of economics hospital administrative background.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, so I took an EMT class when I was a sophomore and a, as an undergrad at GW. Um, not many universities offer you know, to take a credit delivering class. And, you know, it was on uh, two nights a week. Um, and uh, and I loved it. I, you know, I grew up as a kid watching the show Emergency and said, oh, I'd love to, to take a EMT class. I had no idea I'd use it. And it just so happened that, Uh, in parallel to that, my father's law practice, he was in private practice at the time, hit the real estate, the bubble burst in the real estate market. And his practice had some significant economic shortcomings, which required me to step out of school between my fall semester and spring semester of of, uh, sophomore year. So my mom, who I mentioned, you know, was a nurse uh, at St. Raphael's. Uh, She called up a colleague in the emergency department, said, hey, my son just got certified EMT. Could he work in the emergency department while he figures out what he's going to do? And I did just that. I became an ER tech and I fell in love with it. It was uh, from the first day I put on scrubs and was doing CPR in the resuscitation room, uh, watching the team uh, work together in, in incredible ways without talking and you know, just for the sole purpose of keeping that patient alive or helping somebody who in need, um, I, I fell in absolute love with it. The people there were spectacular. And so it was then talking to a number of physicians and uh, the administrative staff at St. Raphael's that I said, you know, maybe there's something here between my business interests and, you know, my love of kind of economics and the principles that drive business. And healthcare, and so that's when it really shifted. Um, I did my senior thesis work on uh, the designation of trauma systems across the country. At the time, uh, the trauma alert systems were just coming in. Maryland and New Jersey were two states that had ear- were early adopters. Uh, that I did that work, and it actually turns out, and you know, the the study that I did that. Um, you know, it's both beneficial for patients and cost, uh, which, you know, was was still the, uh, you know, the optimal outcome of, of the work that we do. But but that's how it really began. And uh, and, and I haven't looked back since. You
1: know, uh, Chris, it's it's a you know, we're so fortunate to have you in this position. And, uh, you know, it's it, it, these are trying times. You know, story, a feel good story, a local kid you come back, you know the area so well, but, you know, you've got one of the hardest jobs in America, not necessarily the Yale job, but I mean, you know, leading healthcare systems right now turns out to be one of the most challenging. You've got various constituencies, various different interests, you know, you're you're being battered by healthcare policies that you have no control over, at least, you know, trying to influence, and, and the demands keep increasing every day, every day. I, I want to ask kind of a, on a personal level, like, how do you manage that? Because the incoming's got to be so intense. You've got some view of the long term, so you're trying to implement a longer term strategy. But the but the number of crises that end up on your desk every day, just because you're running this enormous healthcare system, you've got a lot of capable people around you. But but still, I mean, in the end of the day, you, you know, the buck stops with you. And what's your strategy about managing that kind of? You know, uh, responsibility. Well,
2: you said it, Harlan. It, it's really the team. Uh, you rely on your team because you know only a fool would sit in this seat and think they can manage it all. Um, so, so I'm incredibly dependent uh, on on the, the colleagues that I work with and have worked with over the my career. And uh, and you know, I, I think it, it is certainly true that when I moved into the CEO role. It is different. Um, I, you know, while I had it at Saint Raphael's, the scope and magnitude here is just, you know, it's uncomparable, and uh, and so it's forced me to rely even more heavily on that team, and that's creating new skill sets for me. And I will tell you, I'm still developing those, uh, and there's still plenty of opportunity to do it more effectively. But um, but but that that's what it comes down to, and and it's about building those relationships because. Uh, the times will get hard and and, you know, you're going to need to lean on those even more so when when you have those difficult issues that you have to overcome.
0: You spoke uh, at the beginning really eloquently about the transformation of New Haven. And Harlan and I haven't been here during those years, but we've been here since then. I've been here a and long
1: time, Howie. I've been here. A long time. I
0: know you, you have. you. You've, I know. But I still, came here not in
1: 76. I first but came not 70, 76. not
0: 70. So 76, yeah, but, 76. <laughs> No, but but so you've seen the transformation and you described it aptly, but uh, Harlan and I were also here in the early aughts, as they say, when Yale New Haven Hospital was uh, covered in a negative way, appropriately so, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal for its collection practices. And they really led the way, I think, in revising those collection practices. Harlan has a tremendous scholarship in the area of financial toxicity. Haven has tried to address that at the root. Um, in addition to that, Haven has won awards now for community benefit um, and is reasonably highly rated by the Loan Institute for community benefit. And I was just wondering if you could speak to how do you balance when a hospital is losing money or struggling, how it continues to make a commitment to the community around it beyond just the healthcare provision? Well, unfortunately,
2: uh, you know, as I walked into the office, it's really the first time that Yale New Haven has experienced those losses. So uh, we're embarking upon new territory. And uh, what I will say is that, you know, our commitments to the communities go beyond our, you know, profit and loss statements. That they have to be enduring, that these are communities that we are going to be in for hundreds of years, we believe. And, and so therefore it can't be on an episodic year by year basis. We have to be in this for the long term. And, you know, and that's what's so important about when times were good, we had the fortune to build some balance sheet depth, uh, to enable us to support programs even when uh, the uh, we were having year-to-year losses as we're in right now, so you know I think that's so critical. Uh, these communities, you know, we are the largest employer in, in most of the communities that we are in, and and therefore our moves make a difference in you know the sustainability of New Haven, Bridgeport, New London, and Greenwich. Um, So it it is essential that we are committed over the long term with these communities and will continue to be. So I think it's a it's a priority. It's an institutional priority. I've been incredibly supported by the board uh, as well as Yale University in in those efforts. And and I think that commitment remains incredibly strong.
1: You know, one of the interesting things that I learned about you was I, I didn't realize that you were actually down in New Orleans during Katrina and And we're in a position where you had to help manage the response while, you know, the the floods there are still extraordinary. You know, and I I went down there afterwards and saw some of that damage. I mean, it it was catastrophic. I wonder if you could just reflect a little bit on some of the lessons learned. What what did you experience in that and what did you take away from that? Because, you know... I hope you're unlikely to confront anything quite like that again. But it must have, you know, been a turning point.
2: Well, I tell you, you know, you contrast the experience during COVID, which was a very long duration event, and you didn't have a window into when it would end, to Katrina, where it was a very short duration event. We thought we knew when it would end after the hurricane passed. Unfortunately, for the levee breaches, uh, it, it went on long beyond that. But but, you know, those are very different experiences. But I think there were lessons that rang true for both. One is communication is extraordinary, you know, and, and it's always imperfect and we'll always learn from what we could do better. But I, I will tell you, I think in both instances at Yale New Haven during COVID and down at Ochsner during Katrina, um, we were out in front and particularly with our employees, uh, we were communicating regularly. Um, I think that's essential. And the other thing I mentioned earlier in a different context, and that's uh, the importance of team. I had no idea who our uh, boiler plant workers were down there, who uh, our plumbers were that were dealing with the steam and, and some of uh, our HVAC issues. But boy, when you're in the middle of that type of a response, Where, even though Auctioner, for the most part, certainly at our main campus, we remained relatively dry, water came up to literally our curbside. Um, We had enormous uh, impact from the storm. Roofs blown off. Uh, You know, I I mentioned our our steam was impacted because we had uh, a vent, Uh, the chimney was kind of blown over, and therefore it didn't allow the the steam to, to operate effectively. Um, we, left, we lost water service. So, so, I mean, that experience of, you know, relying on the entirety of the staff and obviously our clinical staff, it goes without saying, they were operating in incredible conditions. Um, it, it was impressive how the team with a capital T was so essential to getting through that. And, uh, and you know, it was, it was an amazing experience, as difficult as it was. You know, there's a psychology of those of us who were there during the storm itself versus those who came in to relieve, um, you know, it felt like they missed something. And it, that's not what you want either, because they, we wouldn't have been able to do what we did if we didn't have the backup team there, and more for the, uh, the, the clinical staff. And and it was just, it was such a, an invigorating, I mean, if I didn't think that I went into the right industry after living through that experience, you know, it, I think most of us come into healthcare, no matter what our roles are, to try and make a difference. And boy, did we feel like we were making a difference during that time. But it, it also came with some frustrating times. I mean, You know, I remember when uh, there was a false report that um, there were uh, mobs overtaking pharmacies uh, because of the insecurity that was felt across the entire city before uh, the 82nd Airborne came and hit the ground and really took things back Um, and and watching people cry and break down. And we had a physician, uh, actually a physician leader who broke down and had some serious mental illness. And, you know, these events create, you know, opportunities where you can't mask some of that vulnerability. So, you know, it was an immense experience. I could probably talk about it for days and, but probably some of the most rewarding and difficult time in my career, uh, that I have experienced.
1: You know, Chris, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and, and to give folks a a little bit of a view into, you know, who you are and, and what you're doing and, and, uh, Anyway, for us, it's been a terrific, uh, terrific. Visit. It's fantastic.
2: Well, you guys are a pleasure. And I, I always enjoy time with both of you and uh, anytime. And it was a thrill Thank for me you. as well.
0: Thank you very much.
2: Wow, that was terrific. You know, I, I, what
0: I really love about that interview is is Chris was was willing to share a little bit about who he is in addition oh to God, his perspective yeah. on the health system. I knew too little about him and it was really fun to hear him tell it in his words. Yeah, it's really terrific. But But now we're... Another favorite part of the podcast I me mean, is to hear what you're thinking this week. Well, what I'm thinking are things that you were thinking because you brought this up to me a few weeks ago. Um, there's been a flurry of new stories over the last few weeks, and there's and I'm starting to see common threads to all of them. And, and as I mentioned, you mentioned one of them to me about a week or two ago. But then two more financially consequential events have occurred that is bringing this into focus. So, as our listeners recall. Medicare Advantage, which is the private delivery of Medicare through private firms, has been an incredibly lucrative business for many players in healthcare, but most notably the companies that run the plans themselves. Humana is at the top of the list for that. They've been the greatest beneficiary. The stock remains up 1,800% since the passage of the law that created the modern Medicare Advantage plans 20 years ago. This compares with a 350% increase for the overall market, so this is vastly more than just your average stock. But Humana reported a large loss two weeks ago, and you were the first to point it out to me, and it's now down 25% as a stock since September. This week, another firm called Cano Health filed for bankruptcy. This was a fast-growing primary care practice and practice manager that has been actively sought for Medicare Advantage delivery. So in other words, primary care for the Medicare Advantage patients. They have been circling the drain, no exaggeration here, for a while now. They are down more than 99%. In fact, it may be 99.9% from their all-time high set just three years ago this week. Right? Right. Their problems were truly multifactorial, but one contributing factor was their reliance on Medicare Advantage at a time when scrutiny of Medicare risk adjustment was growing. And this is before the Biden administration instituted yet greater restraints on risk adjustment and other changes that can cost Medicare Advantage plans money. And then third, beyond Humana and Cano Health, is Devoted Health. It's a so-called unicorn because it's worth $13 billion. It's a startup that only deals in Medicare Advantage plans and is heavily weighted to two states, Texas and Florida. And yet in the five years of its existence, it has not turned a profit. And it's now having to raise even more funds to just continue operating. So I have no doubt that Medicare Advantage has been a hugely lucrative space for a long time. But the good times may be coming to an end. We'd want pricing to be fair. It's not like I want them to lose money. But we also want to make sure risk adjustment has to be accurate. And I'm going to ask you about that in a second, Harlan. We should want quality of care to be high. And what I think right now is this may be a pivotal moment in history of Medicare Advantage plans. They are, the firms that run them, are pushing back on the continued cuts in risk adjustment payments. And time will tell. And I want to ask you, Harlan, whether you think – We are sufficiently good at risk adjusting at the administrative data level so that this should not be a problem going forward, that we can accurately price these plans.
1: Well, first of all, let's just say when we see losses in these companies, it's not just whether or not, you know, what the risk adjustment works, because they're spending money on a lot of different things. I'm always a little skeptical when I see like company like Humana saying that loss and then pegging it on Medicare Advantage. It's to the yeah, that's fair. it, It favors them to to say, hey, this is why we need to be paid more because this is not viable. And and the company, of course, got lots of different things that they're spending money on. But I do think that we're at a moment in time where, if we wanted to, we could produce highly accurate risk adjustment. Meaning for people who are listening, that we could predict what should these people cost under ideal conditions. You've taken on risk. You've taken on a large number of people and said, we're going to provide care, pay us for this in a lump sum, and we will manage the care for these people. We are at a point in time where we could estimate that with a high degree of accuracy. It was previously known that it was probably the risk model was favoring the Medicare Advantage firms and overpaying them because there was a sense that we should be moving people into Medicare Advantage, and we wanted to incentivize businesses to grow in this area. Right. That was never said out loud. But I think in in the hallways, people knew that this was true. The question is, is that changing now? What's going on? Uh, You know, and and there are things like introduction of GLP ones where, you know, these anti-obesity medications could have widespread use. The sickle cell treatment that we talked about, if people start using that millions of dollars, of course, that's going to be constrained by by venues that can actually provide the service. But there's a whole range of advances that are coming down the pike that are expensive, chemotherapy for cancer, and so a range of things. And so the question is, do do these models need to be updated, not because of how sick the people are, which is how these models have normally been done, but because of what are the availability of products and how is that affecting the, the range of things that people might use given a degree of medical need. So it's a complicated area, Howie, because it's not just about people, but it's about you know the pricing
0: in the ecosystem, and, and related to what you talked about in the intro segment, uh, AI and, and using AI might help to better analyze patient charts to know exactly how they should be coded. Right now, we we very often have professional coders being sort of trying to figure out how to. But I'll, I'll take or, you a
1: different way. The question yeah. to me is whether or not this AI, if properly regulated and overseen, can actually cause widespread greater efficiencies within healthcare because of the ways in which it can enable uh, more people to be seen more efficiently with, you know, at
0: with using appropriate who, guidelines
1: ex- and and for people at appropriate levels, like take everyone up for any level of training. You can actually see more complex patients because you're being assisted by AI. Yeah. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholz and Howie
0: Foreman. So how did we do to give us your feedback, keep the conversation going? You can find us on threads. Okay, look, I got to figure this social
1: media thing out. It was so easy for me when I was just doing Twitter. And yes. I, I kinda, Twitter doesn't
0: exist anymore, Harlan. It does not I exist. I signed
1: off of Facebook kind of, although I have an account and I wasn't releasing LinkedIn. But now you're pulling me into LinkedIn. I'm, we're, LinkedIn. we're both agreeing that X has got issues and at least shouldn't be the only place we are. Right. So I'm only going to tell people, hold on tight. I got to figure this out. But yeah, yep. it, it, I know you've got it
0: figured out. So tell us about you and Threads. Well, I, I, I don't have it figured out, but I am on Threads at T-H-E, <laughs> the number four M-A-N, the number four, M-A-N. But you can also email us at health.veritas at Yale.edu. And besides threads and Twitter and LinkedIn and our podcast, I am fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu slash E-M-B-A if you like the podcast please rate us and review us on your
1: podcast app we always read your reviews and i guess i should say if you don't yeah also rate us
0: we're eager yeah to no and and by the way it helps other people find our podcast when you do that you're not doing it just to give us a rating you're doing it to get people to know that our podcast is out yeah, there.
1: you're helping us you're helping us we appreciate all the listeners and we appreciate any help you give us health and veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management, the Yale School of Public Health, thanks to our researchers, Inez Gil, Sophia Stump, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Amazing people. We so appreciate you. So thankful. Yep. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks, Harlan. Talk to you soon.